sermon passage for this morning is from Matthew 24, verses 1 through 4. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. Amen. Let's pray together. Our great God, this morning we come to your word because we want to know you and we want to walk in your ways. We come to your word because we know that your word is truth. We come to your word because we know that your word is good for your people. So now, our great God, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would give us understanding, wisdom, and faith. Would you fill us with a love for you, a love for your people, a love for your word, a love for your world that um, truly transforms who we are. Help us, O God, we see, we pray, we plead in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to take your Bible, turn to Matthew 24, where Sam was just reading for us. Um, If you're a guest this morning here at Redeemer, we are working our way through the book of Matthew, and we now begin chapter 24. We'll be in these four verses this morning, and then we'll work our way through. Um, In the story of Matthew, um, we are in the last week of Jesus's earthly life. We, We call this in remembrance the Holy Week, and as LJ and Austin, those who filled in for me the last couple weeks, have really driven home to everybody, we've been in Tuesday for several chapters, Tuesday of Holy Week, and we're still there, okay? So you're going to get some more Tuesday um, this week. Here's what we're going to see. In chapter 23, Jesus has been speaking very candidly and very tersely toward the religious leaders of Israel. He's been speaking woe and condemnation to them. What we're going to see this morning is that Jesus was not merely calling for, not merely calling for a reformation within the temple worship of Israel, but rather Jesus was coming to radically change what it looked like to relate to God. Jesus was coming to radically change what it looked like to relate to God, because at the end result here is that Jesus is God with his people. Jesus is how we know God. Jesus is how we relate to God. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the once and forever offering for sin. Jesus is the center of how God's people will relate to and follow God. So the passage begins, Jesus left the temple and was going away. I've named this sermon, Leaving the Temple. And that's not just 
a mere physical departure. Because what we're going to see in this passage is the temple's going away. And that's no mere historical accident. But it's actually an important part of how God is moving his people to follow his son, the Messiah. So what we're going to see this morning is, as Jesus has spoken condemnation and woe over the religious leaders, as Jesus has lamented Jerusalem's unwillingness to hear and respond and follow him, now... As he physically leaves the temple, he teaches his disciples to not set their eyes on the temple, but set their eyes on him. So let's look at the passage together. If you want to take notes this morning, our first point is coming destruction. Coming destruction. So look at verses 1 and 2. So Jesus left the temple where he had been speaking woe to the scribes and the Pharisees in chapter 23 and was going away. And so as Jesus and his disciples are going away, we're told that the disciples came to him to point out the buildings of the temple. Now, we don't know what they came to point out. Maybe they came with questions about the buildings of the temple or maybe they came like tourists to ooh and ah at the beauty of of the temple, or maybe they came to encourage him to go and reign in the temple. We don't know what they came to point out, but notice what Jesus says back. You see all of these, do you not? Speaking of the buildings of the temple, truly I say to you, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, I know as we go into Matthew 24 and 25, and we all get our eschatological hairs standing up on the backs of our necks and can't wait for whiteboards and maps and timelines, and none of that's coming here, by the way. But as we all get excited about it, what we actually need to do is get our brains out of speculation and into the clear things that Jesus says. Now, read verse 2. Look at it. If you're visiting, I'm not really angry. This is passion behind a resting angry face. I love you. I'm glad you're here. I've missed you the last two weeks. Thank you, Chris. There was one. Chris, the Brits would say, you're the exception that proves the rule. No one else missed me. I still don't know what that means either, but the Brits love to say it. So, um, what's Jesus say? They said, look at the temple. Jesus said, okay. Every stone will be thrown So Jesus is making very clear that the temple will be destroyed. Now, this is what modern Christians normally do with a passage like that. This is what we do. We go, ah, Jesus predicted it. It happened. He must be God. 
That, that works, okay? Jesus predicted it. It did happen in AD 70. The temple was completely destroyed in a war between Rome and the Israelites, Rome and Jerusalem. It has not been rebuilt. It's now an Islamic house of worship, okay? So, Jesus did predict it, and it did happen. And, and yeah, let's take that away from this. But I don't think that's the point that Jesus is making. If the disciples of Jesus hadn't yet figured out that he could tell what was coming because he was the Messiah, they were really, really late to the game. There is great substance to what's being said here. Ultimately, we need to slow down and consider this question. Why is it such an important matter that the temple would be destroyed? Why is it such an important matter that the temple would be destroyed? So before we get toward anything else, let's slow down and let's consider this. Let's go back a few verses. Chapter 23, verse 38, 37 and 38. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate. So Jesus' last word is, your house is desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now here we are, a few minutes, a few hours later, and Jesus has moved from your house is left desolate to your house will be destroyed. That's a turning up the temperature, right? Your house is desolate, your house will be destroyed. So let's do a little temple thinking. When God's people, so ultimately the temple was intended to be the place where God dwelt among his people. It was to be the place where God dwelt among his people. So when Israel was wandering out of Egypt, they had the tabernacle. The presence of God, the fire and the cloud, this is in the book of Exodus, led the people forward by day and by night, and then it would rest on the tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle, there was the mercy seat, and Moses would meet with God. God would meet with the people through Moses at the mercy seat. Then when they got to the promised land, they got to their place, Solomon built a temple that was a replacement for the tabernacle. So you, you went from mobile church plant to having a spot that doesn't change. Some of you feel that, some of you don't. Bryant, you remember when we were moving here, you sent me that picture of a tattoo of a stack of chairs that you said you felt like you should get from our time at the Y. Do you remember that? You wish you did. 
Well, it's making its rounds on social media again this week. It's like everybody that's been in a church plant, it's just a stack of chairs. Like people are getting tattoos. Might be like a mark of the beast, but that's a digression. Just, just leave that aside. By the way, if you're a guest, I'll only call you out if it's funny, okay? Brian, are we cool? Okay, thank you. <laughs> the temple was, a, was a, intended to be a permanent replacement for the tabernacle where God would dwell among his people. Inside the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and on the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. These were all central ideas of how God related to his people. Then, in the 580s BC, because of Israel's rampant unfaithfulness and rampant rejection of God, God allowed Israel to be taken into captivity. He allowed Jerusalem to be sacked. And what was known as the the exile began. The temple was destroyed. The ark was taken. After 70 years, God allowed his people to return to the land, to return to Jerusalem, and to rebuild the temple. You can read about this rebuilding in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But in many ways of great substance, that temple never equaled what took place in the first one. It may have been bigger and had better materials over the years, but it never equaled what the first one meant. Then, near the end of B.C., moving into A.D., a Roman leader over Jerusalem decided to really ramp up the beauty and the majesty of the physical facade of the temple, and that happened. And now Jesus is saying this temple is going to be destroyed. But, but what's important is what did the temple represent? It wasn't a massive building to prove that, Jude, that Israel was greater than other peoples. It was a building where Israel's God, who was the creator and the one true God, dwelt with his people. Throughout history, it was the place where his word came to his people. It was the place where his grace and mercy came to his people. It was the place where the people made offering and atonement for their sin, where the priests walked with them in that endeavor. So if you're a good, faithful Jew, and you believe that Jesus is the great redeemer of the Jews, and you believe that you're following him into Jerusalem to bring about the kingdom of God, what are you thinking about the temple? That it's about to become central. Because you're going to be there with Jesus dwelling in the temple as the Messiah. And some three days earlier when Jesus came in to Jerusalem and they threw down their cloaks and threw down the branches and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You thought, it's going to happen. 
And Jesus kept saying, no, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. But then you see the temple, and it's kind of like Jesus, the temple. And Jesus says, don't fixate there. It will be destroyed. So friends, we just have to, we have to wrestle this down. The coming of Jesus, the Messiah, is intended to change the way God's presence among his people is known. And it's intended to change the way the faithful practice their faith. No longer is a building the sign of God with us, Jesus is God with us. You remember they celebrated, you shall call his name. We're going to get a month ahead here. You shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus went into the temple and he said, I tell you what, tear this down and I will rebuild it in three days. And they all scoffed at him, but he was speaking of himself. On the day of the crucifixion, the veil that that covered the Holy of Holies would be torn. Showing that the presence of the Holy God is known. And one more. During those tabernacling years, in the early years of the temple, What represented the presence of God in the Holy of Holies? What was it? The pillar of cloud? The pillar of fire, right? So Jesus is going to be condemned and murdered and rise again and appear and appear and appear. And he's going to ascend. He's going to tell his people to wait in Jerusalem on the sign that is to come. What was the sign? Flames of fire? as the Spirit descended upon the people of faith. So now God dwells by His Spirit in His people. So Jesus is God with us. Second, Jesus is the last sacrifice. Take up the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the sacrifice that covers all sin, past, present, and future. If we're in Christ by faith, there is no other sacrifice to be needed. So Jesus is the last sacrifice. Therefore, the sacrificial system of the temple is no longer necessary. Hebrews also tells us that Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the great high priest. We no longer need someone to represent us in the presence of God the way the high priest would going in year after year because Jesus is the great high priest who continually represents God's people and stands as the one who makes God's people acceptable to him. 
acceptable to God. Jesus is the great high priest. So no longer is there needed a temple and a high priest to enter annually. And now some of you might still be sitting there going, okay, well, if all those things are true, why the destruction of it? Well, ultimately, I would say that was in God's wisdom, and we don't get to tell God how to do things. But I would posit one more thought for us. Early in the life of the church, the temple still stood. And the sacrifices were still being practiced. And the church was debating what major question? How Jewish does a Gentile need to become to be a child of God? And the Apostle Paul's answer, written in Galatians, one of the earliest books written, was they don't. They need Jesus. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed, we Jews have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because works, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Friends, ultimately, where Matthew is driving us, where these few verses are driving us is to this point. Jesus is the long-awaited Redeemer of Israel and of the Gentiles. But the kingdom that Jesus came to build and to lead would not just be Jerusalem with a Messiah. It would be something radically different. It would be a people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue redeemed by Christ and dwelt by the Spirit. And Christ is with his people where they are, empowering them to follow him where they are. He's forgiven them once and for all. Therefore, they don't have to make pilgrimages to make atonement for sin. They relate to God through Christ by the Spirit. There's something fundamentally different here. And I can't explain Explicitly say why the Lord decided to tear it all down, but I would suggest that perhaps He decided to tear it all down because of our human weakness and because of our desire to keep going back to the old ways rather than clinging to what's revealed in Christ. So, some of you are like, Amen, preach it, and some of you are like, Whoa, 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 this is challenging. So let me give you some things. I want you to read the book of Galatians. If this is challenging, I want you to read the book of Galatians. Okay. Um, if, you're, if you're a man, 
I guess we can invite ladies. If you would like to study more about the book of Galatians every other Thursday morning at 6 a.m., I have a Bible study across the street. Currently, it's a bunch of men. So the first lady to come will be a trendsetter, but you can bring your friends. We're studying Galatians. 6 a.m. every other Thursday, okay? We, we can do it together. But here's what I want to put out there, guys. Galatians was written before the temple was destroyed. Read Galatians and wrestle with this question. Would these arguments be so strong on the other side of such an event? I think they would have been different. Second, the book of Hebrews. Here's the outline of the book of Hebrews. It's it's 14 chapters long, but here's the outline. Everything you, because it's written to a Jewish audience, everything you knew about relating to God was intended to prepare you for Jesus. Jesus is the greater everything in your religious experience. So allow him to reinterpret all the things. Jesus said point blank, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The implication of this is the way to know God is through faith in Christ. The way to have our sins forgiven is through faith in Christ. The way to follow God and live for his kingdom is by following Jesus and everything that he says to us. Let's elevate Christ. Verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, we have some questions. So that pushes us to the second point, honest questions. Teachings like this raise honest questions. There's some necessary follow-up and some necessary, I need some help. So sitting on the Mount of Olives, which overlooked Jerusalem and was also on the road on the way to Bethany where Jesus and the disciples were staying. The disciples now privately come to Jesus and say, hey, we have some questions. And they ask him three questions. When will these things be? Meaning, when will the temple be thrown down? What is the sign of your coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? Now, this is going to blow your minds. Just blow your minds. But the best way to understand the rest of chapter 24 and 25 is Jesus is simply answering those three questions. The best way to interpret and understand the rest of chapter 24 and 25 is Jesus is simply honestly teaching his disciples and answering those three questions. And he begins with this phrase. See that no one leads you astray. So Jesus is going to teach his disciples enough about the destruction, the sign of his coming, and the end of the age that they may not be led astray. That they may not be led astray. So what's the purpose of Matthew 24 and 25? I think it's this simple. Jesus is going to teach his disciples enough that they not be led astray in how they think about the destruction of the temple, the sign of his coming, and the end of the age. 
That's where this is moving, okay? So, what I want to do now is just take a couple minutes and speak to you as your pastor, as one who loves you, as one who cares deeply for you, about how we need to prepare ourselves for Matthew 24 and 25. Number one, don't be led astray. My burden for us is that we be discerning enough in what the scripture actually says that we're not easily led astray. If somebody comes to you with with a, a very polished, clear, if you'll just accept what I'm selling you, it all makes sense and you'll never have another doubt, I would encourage you to not listen. Okay? Don't be led astray. So what I want to do in the next few weeks, months, as we work through chapter 24 and 25, I think you've probably bought into the fact by now we're in no hurry to finish Matthew. We may just be waiting Jesus out. Like, come Lord Jesus, take us home. Is that we would take the very clear truths of this passage and let those become pegs. Let those become pillars. Let those become the, the weight bearers that shape our faith and our understanding of these things. That's what I would hope for. Second, often I feel like conservative evangelical Christians approach Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Daniel 9, and the book of Revelation like this. I belong to a camp, and I'm going to use these passages to prop up the, the belief of the camp that I'm in. Okay, If that's how you expect these to be approached, you're probably going to be a little bit disappointed. I don't plan to use words like dispensational, premillennial, historic, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, preterist, or partial preterist in any shape or form in this. We won't have a whiteboard, we won't have timelines, and we won't be putting dates on things, okay? But if you know what those camps are, and they mean like it's everything to you, and you need your pastor to fit into one of them, and I would, but I'm not going to say it. I would encourage you to flip the script and say, what are the firm, clear realities in this passage that I will shape my belief system around rather than how do I use this passage to squeeze into my belief system? Does that distinction make sense? On big things, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're all sinners. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way to the Father except through him. On those big things, cling. But on these secondary and tertiary matters, let the scripture shape like crazy. It's okay to evolve. As long as we don't evolve out of the scripture or away from Jesus, or as long as our involving is not 
prompted by something in geopolitics or prompted by something that our favorite politician said or prompted by an online teaching ministry. Be prompted by the word. Be prompted by the spirit. That distinction makes sense? We talk about this in our new member class every time. Our statement of faith says there will be an end. Jesus is coming back. When Jesus comes back, there will be a reckoning where his children spend eternity with him and those who are not his children will be separated from him and enter judgment and condemnation. Those states last forever. That's the primary. Underneath that's a whole host of differing interpretations and differing beliefs and differing things. And I would argue that while it will cause us to do a little work and take on a little humility, it's okay to disagree about some of the things down here. Okay? So let's approach all of that discourse, that's Matthew 24 and 25, with grace and with love. Third, let's approach Matthew 24 and 25 looking for more hope in Jesus. More hope in Jesus, more longing for Christ, more of a come quickly, Lord Jesus, more of we need Christ more than we need our next breath. And often the path toward more Jesus is a path of a little less certainty. Maybe I don't have it all figured out, but I know that Jesus is the answer. And he is the way. Guys, I'm not trying to back anybody into some like philosophical trap. There's no aha here. It's let's humbly pray for the Lord to teach us and guide us. Let's humbly pray that the Lord would be the one who pushes us forward toward So now, our great God, we ask for your help now this morning. We plead for it in the name of Jesus, the Christ, who is your Son, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen.